Université Paris 1, Panthéon-Sorbonne. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I always uh, find it a little bit, uh, a little bit apprehensive about uh, talking about the thing I do because the audiences are very mixed, and um, I'm not a physicist. Um, in fact, I'm an architect, architect planner by training. Although two of my co-authors, Martin Asterick and Ollie O'Brien, have uh, master's degrees in and PhDs in physics from Oxford. So, uh, but they're, as you'll see, they're involved more in visualization in this context. But um, uh, also, um, I'm conscious too that I'm not really going to talk about interactions. In fact, um, one of the features uh, that I'll be talking about is really scaling and scaling with respect to locations. Uh, and one very important issue, I think, in terms of our research group is that we tend to think of interactions as being the unpacking of locations, that uh, um, interactions are particularly significant in terms of networks and flows, etc. Uh, but in some senses, uh, what goes on in a location is a function of interaction. If you go back 50 years, there was a famous book uh, produced by uh, Princeton University Press uh, called Traffic, a Function of Land Use, in which um, uh, uh, Mitchell and Rapkin argued uh, in the 1950s that whenever you looked at location, you really should look at traffic or interaction in that sense, because locations represent summations or syntheses of interactions. Now, what I'll be talking about, in fact, is really um, locations rather than interactions, and, and locations in question uh, will be largely physical, largely cities, but they could be firms or they could be buildings and things of that sort, but they're things that exist in a, in a, at a point in space. Um, and um, they exist in a point in space, but you can unpack them in terms of interactions. And of course, I'm, I'm sure uh, everybody in the room knows at least a little bit about the fact that um, uh, scaling pertains to interactions and flows as well as, it, as well as to locations. Okay, so I'm going to really be talking about cities, and I'm going to talk about power laws and scaling, etc. Um, but more at the level of not so much the models behind um, how we can model locations, but actually sort of representing uh, locations and seeing how uh, those representations can tell us a bit about uh, space-time dynamics. I'm um, just going to start off with talking about city-sized distributions. That's relatively straightforward um, in the sense that um, I anticipate the fact that uh, distribution of city sizes is, uh, really follows at least to a first approximation of power law, where you have a very small number of large cities and a very large number of uh, small cities. And of course, to be a big city, you've got to really be a small city first. So there is a kind of asymmetry involved in all of that. I'll talk a little bit about city size distribution and scaling the rank size rule, which goes back a long time, goes back at least 100 years. Uh, and then I'll sort of introduce the main uh, thesis, if you like, related to this that we're interested in, and that is that city size distributions, as indeed firm size distributions, income distributions, and so on, many distributions of activity in the social sciences, um, do seem to manifest a macro stability, but when you unpack that stability, there's clearly a micro volatility. Uh, so the real puzzle is to actually um, really try and explain the micro-volatility in terms of the macro-stability in that sense. So this, this entire contribution, this first thing this afternoon I'm talking about, is really to do with that. And it's not to do with modelling it yet, um, although there are hints of this. It's more to do with simply representing it and unpacking it and beginning to try and understand it. What we do is, uh, 
Uh, obviously, the rank size rule, which is a version of a power law, uh, has been used to look at city size distributions for many years. Uh, what we do in this uh, context is to actually develop some other visual representations, in particular the idea of the rank clock, where we throw away size in some sense and just look at rank and time in a sense. We have population, we have size, rank, and we also have time because we're, we're interested in what's happening over time in this context of these, uh, these, these, these relatively stable distributions. Uh, and to some extent, um, we can look at space, time, and rank in this particular context. Um, uh, and size as well in different representations. Uh, and then I'll look at some examples. US city populations from 1790 to 2000 um, is very classic because the American uh, continent opened up, the New World as such, as so you can see a great wave of cities uh, developing over this 200 year or so period. Uh, and then I'll look at uh, US metro area populations, which are interesting over the last 50 years, uh, where we see different uh, kinds of volatility uh, and at the same time, that gives us a chance to actually look at other attributes of cities, not just population size, but incomes, and then we can look at populations divided by incomes, uh, or rather incomes divided by population, income per capita. And we see that some of the macro stability in population and in income begins to disappear when we take ratios um, of these things to each other. So as we unpack uh, the different size attributes, then we can begin to see differences. Japanese populations, uh, that's interesting because uh, much of what I'm saying treats a city as a point in space, not an area, um, but the Japanese data that we have actually subdivides Japan into exhaustively into a bunch of urban areas in that sense. So they remain stable over time in that sense. We're no longer thinking of cities as a point, but cities as an aerial, an aerial space which fills up in some sense. Um, and that actually changes the perception of scaling. Uh, and then I'll actually uh, look again back at rank clocks. I'll add place to rank clocks, and then we'll do some animation of rank clocks and rank space, and then some next steps, really, uh, to think about how we can uh, develop this research program. Okay, so the key thesis is we need to visualize dynamic systems where the, the system appears stable at the macro level, but it's volat very volatile at the micro. And there are two quite nice quotes to start with. Um, uh, this, in fact, is a very uh, uh, famous author, Jane Jacobs, who uh, passed away recently, who wrote a great book called, great, called The Death and Life of Great American Cities, where she argued in 1960, when she produced this book, uh, that um, essentially cities should be treated as complex systems um, in that context, that, that, that they were very diverse. So in, in many senses, she was way ahead of the way. But she wrote a number of books um, uh, about cities, one of which, uh, 10 years or so after her famous book, The Economies of Cities, she quotes this uh, from Herodotus, uh, from the histories, which, uh, and I'll read it very quickly. I will tell the story uh, as I go along. Small cities, no less than great. Most of those which were great once are small today, and those which in my own lifetime have grown to greatness were small enough in the old days. So to some extent, that pictures this notion of the um, micro volatility in terms of city size. How can one reconcile this with the second quote, which is from Krugman, uh, a paper about uh, uh, 15 years or so ago, 
um, in which he says the size distribution of cities in the United States is startlingly well described by a simple power law. The number of cities whose population exceeds P is proportional to 1 over P. This simple regularity is puzzling. Even more puzzling is the fact that it has remained apparently, it has apparently remained true for at least the past century. Um, so he's saying, this, this is the quote about macro stability. When we unpack what Krugman is talking about in terms of city size distributions, we see amazing volatility. You know, 200 years ago, Houston and Los Angeles and Chicago weren't there, and they've come from nowhere to when they were small uh, to that. So immediately just knowing something very obvious about the development of city system, you can see there is uh, considerable volatility notwithstanding this macro stability. Okay, now this, to some extent, I'm going to go through very quickly. It's simply an aid memoir that uh, you know all about this. This is size. Uh, these are members of our group. Uh, myself, Rui Cavallo, Andy Hudson-Smith, uh, Richard Milton, Duncan and Phil, who we wrote a paper on uh, size distribution of building in London. And uh, in that context, we were explaining it to architects. Uh, and we said that essentially in the social sciences uh, and in many sciences that the distribution of the sizes of heights, for example, the heights of adults was normally distributed. If you look at me, I'm the shortest, uh, and unfortunately we still use the non-metric scale, so I'm five foot six inches tall, and Rui is about six foot four inches tall, um, and uh, there's Phil Stedman there, sort of who's about five foot eight inches, and uh, Richard Milton who's about... Uh, uh, five foot uh, ten inches, Andy in the middle is five foot nine inches, uh, and then Duncan, who is uh, um, about six foot. Uh, and in that respect, that uh, I mean, this is about well known that this is this is normally distributed. It's not extreme in any sense, um, and that's the way we learn about statistics in this context. There is an interesting issue here that if you look at the age of people, then. Uh, me and Phil Stedman are by far the oldest, in a sense, and people are getting bigger. Even in Britain, people are getting taller uh, as time goes on in that context, notwithstanding what happens in the Netherlands, United States, and presumably France as well. Okay, so that's our normal distribution. What we're talking about here is really an extreme distribution in that sense, which is the power law. Um, I say it's a power law. A um, lot of dispute about this. It's probably closer, most of these distributions are log normal, uh, in the sense that if you go right down to the very smallest unit in terms of cities, the hamlet, you find a relatively small number of villages, potentially which could all grow big, uh, and then, for example, uh, the curve rises quite rapidly, uh, peaks, as it were, um, or relatively small sizes, then drops off in this particular fashion, uh, with what is referred to I never quite know the appropriate jargon here, the short, fat, or heavy tail at this end. Depends actually how you draw the graph to some extent, this uh, sort of nomenclature. Uh, and then the long tail in this particular context. So uh, in that context, the, uh, the, the city size is part, of this, um, uh, is part of the long tail in that context. Okay, now um, if to, turn the, to turn this uh, frequency distribution, uh, which is the power law, uh, into a um, a rank size distribution, then uh, it's a relatively straightforward procedure. Um, if you think of the uh, frequency distribution, which you've just seen uh, as, the, uh, as the graph on the uh, left-hand side there, and then the cumulative frequency, if we turn the cumulative frequency around and work it backwards, etc., uh, then it produces the counter-cumulative frequency, which is the rank size rule. So we start off with frequency on the vertical axis here, and um, uh, size on the horizontal axis, and what we've done is to twist it round so that we have now have 
size on the vertical axis and uh, um, counterfeit frequency which is ranked on the horizontal axis. So that's a relatively straightforward uh, uh, operation in that context. Uh, many people argue that the counter-cumulative or the rank size distribution is the best one to fit. Many people would argue that that's not the best one to fit in a sense, um, although there is some, uh, th th this, th the fact that one's dealing with the cumulative sort of irons out some of the noise in these distributions. So that's our counter-cumulative, uh, and of course, um, if we take uh, logs in that sense, uh, uh, we, can, we can linearize it, if it, indeed it follows um, power law in that context. Uh, and indeed, what was originally argued, but when people began to examine these things in the context of cities, word frequency distributions and so on, uh, was that the uh, power law was particularly simple in this context, that the population, for example, or the size on the vertical axis was um, inversely proportional, at least in its logarithmic form, to uh, 1 over the rank in this particular context. So in other words, the uh, the power to which rank might be raised in that sense, the power of the, uh, uh, the scaling law was equal to one. Uh, and it so happened that the first people to do this did it on American cities, and the American urban system, which is particularly well developed in some sense, and to, to an extent isolated, does seem to manifest a, uh, a power law, um, which is the, uh, uh, where the power is, is, is indeed equal to one. Okay, so, um, uh, I've really said all of this, but um, we, we can indicate, of course, the stability of city size by showing how this rank size curves change over time. We'll, we'll keep in the linear world, the logarithmic world in this particular context. So what we'll look at and what Zip, for example, George Kingsley Zip, who was a professor of German at Harvard uh, um, uh, before the war and uh, just a bit after, uh, he was the first person to... Um, uh, uh, begin, well, he was the person who popularized, I should say, the fact that the U.S. urban system uh, could be seen in terms of these stable power laws changing from 1790 to 1930. Um, and, of course, it prompted this Krugman quote that I gave you earlier on. Now, all of this is in his famous book. Um, and, uh, of course, Krugman himself uh, uh, said in the late 90s, not in the, in the, in the article I quoted, but he says that uh, essentially Zip's law, and Pareto's law, which of course is related to this, um, are really the only example of iron laws in the social sciences. I think, it, I think one tribute would have gone and say they're the only example of iron laws really anywhere in this sense. And they're not quite laws, we, we, could, we could argue about this. Okay, now, this in fact is the first empirical evidence, or the best early, early demonstration of empirical evidence from uh, Zip's book in 1949, and you can see log of population and log of rank in that sense. Uh, and uh, uh, in some senses, notwithstanding the uh, slight shifts in the curve in that sense, there does appear to be linearity, there does appear to be stability in the linearity. And of course, as the, uh, as the, uh, the system grows, as it were, in this particular context, you can see the American system, urban system growing in this direction, population getting bigger. Uh, and gradually, uh, as we approach the year 2000, this is only up to 1930, then these curves get um, uh, get 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 uh, get closer to one another because the system uh, is growing considerably less um, at the present time uh, than indeed it was at the beginning in that context. So population growth is contained in this. Now we want to look at this question of uh, macro um, volatility, uh, uh, sorry, macro stability and, and uh, micro volatility. 
then let's have a look at uh, New York. In fact, New York has been the anchor point of the American urban system uh, since the beginning, in that sense. And to some extent, it's the only city that's remained in this sort of exclusive position. It's still uh, the largest metro area in the United States um, in this particular context. So that's another example, I suppose, of the uh, macro stability. However, if we looked at Houston, for example, uh, which was nowhere until uh, uh, about 1910, I guess, in that sense, we trace the curve down. Even in Zipp's law, Houston had risen to about eighth or ninth in the system by 1930, very rapid growth. And if we looked at Chicago, Los Angeles, and so on, we see Chicago uh, coming in um, a bit earlier than Houston, uh, and uh, Los Angeles, again, between Houston and, uh, um, uh, and Chicago, in that sense. So we see these very rapid rises in ranks, as it were, these individual cities. Equally well, we'd see somewhere like Richmond, Virginia, which was part of the old colonies, basically, sort of losing rank, in a sense, something like uh, two or three back in 1790, and then shooting off. And in fact, in the top 100 cities, Richmond, Virginia is now long gone, basically, from the top 100. So you can sort of see this kind of volatility buried in the, at the micro level, but uh, embedded in this, um, uh, in this macro stability. Now, at one level, phenomenologically, I think that um, this is not difficult. Sorry. Um, this is a segment, and it's quite segment. If you had drawn uh, the points uh, yes. for each, each year, rather than census, yes. how would it look like? Well, um, well, they would, uh, of course, the rank here would uh, they'd get denser as we came yeah. down here in this particular context. And, um, but they would coincide with the line. I mean, this is, this is from zip, basically. Um, uh, and I probably should, it's uh, a good point actually, I should probably show that actually in a future lecture I will, I will actually show that as a point, it's a fair point in that sense because they do, they get denser as we go down the curve clearly uh, because we see the increasing uh, pattern of ranks in that particular context. But they do, they do fit on the line basically. I think what Ziff did, and I think what perhaps we might have some more of this uh, a bit later, we actually, they actually connect the points in that sense. They're not fitted in that sense, they're connected. Okay, now the idea of the rank clock is to discard the population because rank is equivalent in some sense to population and just plot the changes in rank with respect to time. And so in other words, in changing the, the emphasis in some sense, this is what we call rank space in some sense. So we have, we have three variables here in a sense that time uh, is contained, if you like. It's not explicit in this, in this graph. If we make one of these if we make uh, one explicit, time explicit in that context, then we produce something which is the rank clock. Um, and to produce the rank clock, what effectively we do is we, splay the, we start at some point at the top of the clock and we assume that the, uh, the time of interest is contained within the, uh, the complete clock in that sense. So t to, uh, time t is the starting point, time t plus t is the end point. So in this context, we start with 1790 here, um, and we uh, array around the clock to uh, the year 2000. Uh, we should probably now use 2010, because the data has been available within the, uh, the last year. Um, and we can plot, as it were, the rank. Uh, we plot the rank with the, with the rank of the city at a particular time, so 1790. Uh, the top-ranking city is plotted 
as a point in that context. So, for example, if you take this particular um, city, which I can't remember what it is, but uh, uh, it's about rank, uh, this is probably 20, 40, 68, 100, it's the top 100 ranks they're showing here. Uh, this city would be about uh, rank 12, uh, and this, this trace, in fact, is the rank of that particular city all the way around to when it leaves the top 100. So to some extent we can see this is losing rank, this particular city. Um, this is a city which is coming in, uh, gaining rank at this point and then losing it. And it might actually re-enter it. It's possible that it could re-enter it in that sense. So there are many different trajectories. Uh, this is a city that, uh, uh, which uh, contains the same rank. Uh, throughout in this context. This is something like Houston or Chicago that's nowhere in this particular point in time and then enters the clock in that sense rising towards the top. So it's quite a good visual representation of the sort of dynamics of how these objects are beginning to change. Now this is a picture of the American urban system from 1790 to 2000. Let me try and explain how it works because um, although you've probably got some sense of how it works at this point, uh, then the colours are quite confusing. And one of the reasons why we've been so interested in animating this sort of, these sort of dynamics is so that we can actually begin to unpack them and interact with them and learn about the system by pointing to individual cities. But in terms of the clock, what we do is when a city enters, we start at time 1790. Um, New York, in fact, is coloured red at this particular point. So all of the cities that are in the top 100 in 1790 are coloured a shade of red dependent upon their rank. Now you can see that that's the vertical line on the clock and you can see that there were only something like um, 40 cities in the year 1790 which recorded in the American census. Uh, it really took until 1840 before there to be uh, uh, 100 cities actually defined in this particular context, and now if we take it all up to the year 2000, then there's something like 20,000 uh, individual places which are recorded in the census. So, uh, to some extent, what we're seeing here is the growth of the system towards the point at which we have the top 100. We're only dealing with the top 100 in this context, so it's a kind of relative analysis. We could deal with all places up to the 20,000, etc., in some senses. So, to some extent, we have to make decisions about, well, we have to make decisions about what is a city to some extent, but we also have to make decisions about how many cities we're looking at in terms of this particular dynamic. So, you can see, you can trace here, for example, something that's fallen off the clock. There's something here that's gone by 1890, I don't know what it is, um, but some of our later animations show that you can point to this and pull out that particular. City. You see a general, uh, a general tendency in this clock for, uh, for there to be a, a domination in terms of time, uh, things happening earlier and then falling out of the system are becoming less significant, but this is largely due to the growth of the system in this particular context. So blue through to, sorry, red through to blue represents the point at which uh, a city has actually entered the dynamics from 1790 to 2000. Okay, now this is exactly the same thing in terms of the rank space. So this indeed is our, our ZIMF diagram, except at this point we've actually, we've actually colored according to the clock, we've colored it according to when it entered, and you can actually see the trajectory, um, which is to some extent um, equally confusing in some sense, perhaps a little bit more confusing, but again, with suitable animation in this context, then we can actually produce 
uh, much better representations back in terms of the original uh, round, uh, round space. And because you see New York here, uh, which was uh, whatever it was in 1790, uh, uh, through to its population in, in the year 2000, is again being the anchor point of the system. Uh, and you can, you can more or less see things uh, rising up in this particular context. You can see the Houston's operating in this way. Uh, and this is a picture of some of these uh, traces in terms of uh, the names of individual cities. Uh, Boston uh, kind of uh, maintains its position in some sense. Buffalo, um, actually Boston drops a little bit, but Buffalo, for example, is a Rust Belt city. Uh, back in 1830, Buffalo developed really between about 1810, 1830. It was in the top uh, uh, the top 100 in 1830 or the top 80 or whatever it was in 1830 and gradually it's lost rank in sense so you can actually see the sort of development of the US urban system on this plot you can see how these western cities and southern cities uh, Chicago, Atlanta, Los Angeles, Houston and so on uh, Phoenix entering the plot in that sense you can see the, the buffaloes of this world and the Clevelands etc beginning to fall down the plot in a sense so representing the industrialization and deindustrialization of the United States okay and here uh, in fact are, are those picked out some of those examples picked out in terms of the plot okay now um, how are we doing for time right okay so uh, another 10 minutes or so and then um, uh, I'll wind it down and uh, uh, we can have a few questions if, if you want to ask me. Uh, let me actually show you some animations of this to, to, to again impress the idea of what we've been doing. Here's um, uh, a simple program. This is going to show you the, the US urban system. Uh, so that's what we actually see. Now we're going to actually plot. What we're plotting here is um, uh, we're, we're plotting cities which are actually entering. So you can see we're moving from a, a situation of deep red when they first entered through to blue, which is the last city entering, but we're plotting each individual trajectory. Uh, and to some extent, it's quite a good demonstration of the degree of uh, volatility in that sense, also a degree of the opening up, uh, and also the fact that um, uh, most, by, by, by the year 2000, most of the cities that we have in the top 100 are already there. Um, and this is simply going to show you the, uh, the differences. I think that uh, what we've done in this example is to plot the uh, city which has changed the most on top, because as you, as you can appreciate, the, the difficulties of looking at this sort of dynamics uh, is in terms of the sort of confusion that takes place. And of course we are doing things like beginning to classify the different trajectories, beginning to work out uh, uh, different examples of rank shift, population shift and so on. So there are a lot of statistics uh, potentially behind all of this. Okay, now let me uh, move on and um, uh, show you uh, a couple of other things that uh, we've also looked at. Um, uh, we've looked at high buildings, and there are certain objects in cities that uh, uh, really, in a sense, are very different from cities themselves. So we've also looked at high buildings, and one of the criterion about high buildings uh, is that, again. Um, uh, we have a very small number of very, very high buildings. So, for example, the Burj Tower in Dubai is about nearly a kilometre high. Uh, the next building down is about half a kilometre and so on, uh, down to sort of uh, much lower rise in cities. You can sort of see that just by looking out the window here in that context, uh, that they follow some kind of scaling or rank size rule. Um, but one of the key things is that normally a building can't actually grow, whereas a city can actually grow. 
Uh, a building can be demolished in this context, so it disappears from the top 100 or whatever, top 1,000. Um, and occasionally a building can grow. I'm sure you can point to examples here in Paris where a building has there's been add, some stories added, added to the height of a building. That's certainly the case in London. And uh, <coughs> some buildings, in fact, even have got a little bit smaller. Those which have been damaged in some context and have been lowered slightly. But by and large, the morphology of the clock, which is, which, which is of interest, because we can look at different city systems or different size systems and look at the morphology of the clock uh, in that context is different. So um, let me show you the top, uh, let, me show you, let me show you to begin with, before I actually show this, this, this animation, um, this is the example of the top 100 high buildings in New York City, which is on the left. Um, and uh, of the world, and both of them are from 1909 to 2010. Uh, and what you can actually see is that by and large, um, things move out, spiral out of the clock. Um, a big building could remain as number one, like New York City, uh, but it's very unlikely, given technological change in this context, that most of the big buildings, in some sense, Decline. Now, this is quite interesting in terms of the morphology of New York City and high buildings. Uh, we've got high buildings beginning in, well, 1909 is the first point. Uh, the reason for um, the fact that we're looking at the top 120 is there are a lot of ties right at the top. Uh, back at this particular point here. Um, uh, so we're extending it in that sense. Uh, but by the time we get to the 1930s, this period of green, which is the domination of high buildings, in the 1930s, just before the, uh, uh, the recession in the, in the 1930s, the Great Depression, and there's a great wave of high building, just as there has been in uh, uh, many world cities over the last uh, um, 15 years or so, a great wave of high buildings prior to the recession itself. And you can sort of see this kind of history embodied in this particular dynamics. And you can also see, of course, movement from red to green, uh, yellow and, uh, to blue in that sense. Which represents the um, uh, represents the uh, uh, the representation. Now, let me just show you this at the risk of uh, staying my welcome with these animations. Let me just show you because it's quite interesting. It's sort of it's, I find it interesting. Uh, up it, it comes again. So this is the top 100 New York skyscrapers from 1909 to 2010. Just plots them out, and we've actually just seen that in a sense. Now, uh, what it's what it's doing in this context is, uh, is again, plotting the buildings that uh, the point where they actually enter in this context and then fall out of the clock. Interestingly enough, um, many of these buildings are probably still there. Um, a very small number of uh, skyscrapers, high buildings, uh, which we define as skyscrapers in this context, uh, uh, really are still there in that particular context, but of course in the not too distant future, if we do this for Hong Kong, for example, there's a lot of high buildings built uh, really from the 1950s which are now being uh, demolished directly in that sense. So, um, yeah, but in some senses, the morphology is... Now, I'm going to stop this. Uh, this is always dangerous to do this in PowerPoint because the um, question is, will it stop? I think we'll do this three times. It'll stop, right? I'm, I'm sure you're not supposed to do that in Windows. Okay, you, I'll, go, I'll go through this fairly quickly. Um, U.S. metro area populations always does that too. Um, uh, the, the Bureau of Economic Analysis has some very good data, some very good data now on city sizes. The, the UN have a, an excellent data set that uh, I'll show you a, a, a quick uh, picture of later on from of world cities, something like 
600 world cities from 1950 to the modern day, uh, which is particularly interesting, it's become available recently. Um, but there's a good um, uh, US Bureau of Economic Analysis data set on SMSAs. These are, uh, the one thing about the SMSA is that it's controlled for area. So if you look at a city in 1969, it's the same area as 2005, but this is a big area. The standard metropolitan statistical area is really the hinterland of the city in this particular context. So to some extent, this is a halfway house between thinking of the city as an area, uh, uh, which is growing in some sense in a fixed area, and also thinking of it as a point in a sense. And, and these are issues I think that we need to explore in, in much greater detail. Good thing about this particular data set is we also have income in that sense. Now, the next slide shows that the, sh shows the dynamics. This is the plot for uh, these 366 uh, SMSAs, and this is the, uh, these are the, uh, scale, the, the rank size distributions in this context down at the bottom. So this telltale sign is probably not normal in a sense, but let's get that. This is the cumulative frequency distributions in that set. And you can see that uh, uh, this is population, uh, and you can see, relatively no surprise, that some cities uh, rising in population, probably uh, in the American West. But interestingly enough, the income distribution is a little bit more volatile. This was an interesting one in this context. And when we drilled down and found out what this one, this was at, this was Fairbanks, Alaska, which actually in um, uh, the early 1970s became oil rich in some sense uh, and uh, increased its income rapid, quite rapidly, only to kind of. Uh, come back to its, uh, to, to its traditional trend in a sense. So um, again, interesting sort of um, uh, kind of uh, representations which give us a picture of uh, inquiring into this. One of the reasons why we uh, are interested in, in, in animating all of this is to actually point to individual cities and learn about the system. So just learning about the system. Now, this is interesting because what we've done here is we've looked at incomes divided by population, which is per capita income, which is much more volatile in some sense this, I think, is uh, population. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, this is, um, uh, this is the macro stability. Uh, it, it shouldn't be population. It should be incomes divided by population in that sense. So in terms of the rank space, etc., again, we still have this stability. But when we unpack it and we look at these individual uh, representations, we see quite a lot of volatility in how income per capita changes over this 50-year period. Um, uh, for these uh, 366 cities. So again, quite an interesting issue in terms of if we put data together, which is stable in some sense, it becomes more unstable. Now, I think we kind of know that from lots of areas uh, anyway. Um, okay, Japanese populations. Let me quickly quickly go through this and then spend another five minutes before I finish just on t in terms of the animation. We have a, some, some interesting data sets in Japan. There's a data set from 1920 to the modern day, 2,000 or so cities that are mutually exclusive subdivisions of the Japanese space. And in that sense, they're not cities. They've excluded rural areas uh, in some sense. Uh, and then we also have an aggregation of these into 269 cities at the next level. So in some senses, this is giving us the opportunity to look at the dynamics of different spatial scales, uh, which is interesting in and of itself. Uh, because obviously things vary differently at different scales. Uh, but at the same time, we're assuming that the city is fixed in population, uh, sorry, fixed in area in that sense. So to some extent, this really is, in a way, looking at the density of 
city's population as opposed to the actual count. Not strictly speaking, because we don't normalize for density in that sense and rank in that way, uh, but we could do this. In fact, one of them, in fact, is densities. I'm uh, sort of contradicting myself here. But these, are the, the, these are the dynamics of uh, the rank plot for uh, the uh, 2137 for uh, the population for um, these small areas um, uh, in population. And this is the same for densities. And as you can see, quite differences in densities. One of the features is that uh, the war years are actually picked out. They're not so clear in this context. The war years can be picked out. Uh, directly. When we come on to look at Tokyo, uh, which we'll look at next, I think, uh, and this is um, this is for the 269. So this is the these are the comparisons of the rank clocks for the uh, the detailed data set, and this is the aggregation of the 269. Now I'm not going to show you um, the animation at this point, uh, and this is for actually Tokyo, uh, in some senses, in terms of counts and density. So, uh, in other words, um, if we select from the 2137 just the Tokyo subset, really, of this, uh, we can aggregate the city. So this is really at three levels of aggregation, 2137, 269, um, and then, indeed, Tokyo. And I can't tell you how many of these, of the 2137, are actually Tokyo itself. So we're looking at different scales in that context. Okay, so what we've done, um, uh, and what we're doing at the moment, is to begin to explore these dynamics using uh, different types of visualization. The first thing we've done in adding to uh, our rank clocks and our rank space is, is actually place. So as these, cities are as these cities are changing in size and rank, uh, we can actually sort of uh, link them to a map. Now, again, this is fairly standard in a sense, but what I'm particularly interested in is actually uh, putting all this into a web-based context so we can actually link the dynamics on the rank plot and the rank space to the actual dynamics of those same things in terms of the location. So we've got maps, for example, so um, what we've done is to um, uh, have a number of options in terms of this web page, so uh, that's the web page, actually you can download this PowerPoint from somewhere else, I'll give it you in the end if you want. Um, but uh, we, can, we can do various things in these visualizations. We can invert the rank plot, for example. Um, in other words, we've plotted rank and change from the rank of number, the object number one at the centre of the clock. If we turn it around and put the rank of number one on the edge of the clock, then that gives us a slightly different sort of perception of this dynamics in that sense. So uh, we can do lots of things. We can limit the size in this context. So we have a lot of variation to what you've actually seen already. Um, this is actually population for 33 London boroughs, and you're able to point to the clock in a sense, and pick out individual examples. Um, we've picked out three here, Newham, Tower Hamlets, and the City of London. City of London, of course, um, is quite an easy one. The City of London uh, was sort of number one, or very close to number one, uh, and has dropped in population from uh, uh, 1801, basically, through to, it's now by far the lowest uh, population, it's only about six or 7,000 people in the, in the city, uh, from what was uh, very highly ranked um, 200 years ago. And we can pick this out. As you actually uh, point to this clock, you can see them on the uh, OpenStreetMap on the, or the Google Map in that context. Here's the example of high buildings in London from 1950 to 2015. The reason why it's 2015 is that there are some of these things under construction like Shard, etc. on the South Bank, uh, which is scheduled for completion in that sense. We've got a, 
rolling forward slide data set in that sense. And as you click on these things, you can actually see them in a sense uh, in terms of the, uh, the Google Earth plugin at that point. And this is um, tube exit volumes from 2003 to 2009. Uh, there's only um, six points there, six years in that sense. Um, and uh, you can look at these exit volumes, which do actually accord to uh, 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 rank size relationships. Uh, and here's the uh, here's a particularly interesting example: uh, Fortune 500 data, a sample of the fastest rising companies and their locations. We're particularly interested in this is the this is the rank clock of these sizes of firms over the last uh, 50 or so years. Um, and uh, I can't tell you what this is particularly, but this is a firm that's come from really nowhere in the top of those. Well, because they're all Fortune 500 companies, so they're quite big in that sense. But you can see the sort of volatility. In fact, it's true to say that um, of something like uh, certainly the top 100 companies in 1955, there's only about two left um, in the top 100 which were there in 1955. All these outfits like uh, General Motors and Song Ford, etc., have really fallen out, and they've all been replaced by sort of high tech companies. And we're particularly interested in this context in seeing what the dynamics is over time. And we've we're pointing out these companies, these fastest rising companies, are the ones which are selected as being in Silicon Valley in that particular context. Okay, and here's an, here's the UN data set, 595 cities from 1950 to 2025. Again, they contain UN predictions. Uh, and again, this is an example of showing the thing in, uh, in Google Earth. Uh, and the next step is to actually well, I think that Ollie, uh, Ollie O'Brien has developed this, has actually animated these things in a sense, but there's a limit to how much stuff you can get on the screen uh, and uh, remain clear as opposed to confusing in that sense. So a lot of what we're doing is to try and kind of resolve some of those issues. And here again is the, uh, is the data, and you can see that we think we've picked out Tokyo in that context. Now, um, a couple more minutes, just the last animation I want to show you is uh, quite powerful in a sense, which is rank clocks and rank space. What I'd like to do is to actually show you this little bit of software, uh, just load it on the fly and show you. This is the Japanese data set again, uh, and again it shows you our ability to begin to inquire into this micro volatility. So if I load this one, this is my last example, uh, and then I'll just make a few points about uh, what we might do in the, in the immediate future. Um, it takes a little bit of time, this processing software, to, uh, uh, to load in a couple of seconds. Once it pops up, it's uh, quite effective. So here we go. Um, so this is the Japanese uh, population at this point. Whoops, there's a problem with PowerPoint. Okay, so um, what, you can, what we can actually do with this is that we've actually got a limited number of cities which are actually shown. There's something like uh, uh, 20 or so cities at this particular point that you're being shown. So if I increase the number of cities, uh, you can actually see, see, see more of them in that sense. If I actually change this parameter, then you can actually see that, that this is plotting the complete clock. So as a city begins to change, okay, we can actually sort of, we can actually control its tail. So if we only really want to see what's actually happening, we can, we can, we can slide this around. We can pick out individual cities um, in this particular context. So let me say that again. In other words, if we want to actually, um, if we want to actually sort of, uh, um, we want to show all of them, uh, we, we, we use this slider. If we only want to show 
uh, what's happening recently in this particular context, that one. We want to change the number of cities in a sense, uh, then we can see them in that sense. Let me just uh, increase that so you can actually uh, see them in this sense. Uh, we can increase the, uh, the number in that particular context and we can increase their speed. Uh, but let me just take you all the way back to, to this one here in that sense. Um, and of course we can actually point to individual cities. So if I point to uh, um, Sapporo for example, uh, then you can see Sapporo being uh, mapped out in that sense. If I point to Hitachi, then you can see the uh, trace of Hitachi in this particular way. Um, here's Kyoto coming in, that's obviously looks like, uh, actually that's uh, quite accidentally, that shows that Kyoto is uh, an example of a perfect circle. It's always remained as rank number two or three or four, etc. throughout the, uh, the period over which we're actually looking. So we can do a variety of these things in that sense, and you can actually see both in terms of the normal dynamics in that sense, which is just time versus rank, on that context. Uh, and what Martin Hausbrook has done is to actually produce this same kind of visualization for the rank space, which is actually very informative. It means that what we started off throwing away, which was the original rank space, is actually increasingly very informative when we begin to animate these things and how they're changing over the rank space. Okay, let me stop at that point and um, just uh, uh, look at next steps. Um, what we want to do is develop measures for volatility. Now we've done some of this already, um, but we've not done it systematically. So we really need to measure how volatile these things are. We need to begin to classify them. We're very interested in morphology, the aggregate sort of volatility we've seen in these clocks. Whether we can classify them in some sense, I don't know. But certainly we can measure lots of uh, variance type statistics that relate to how things are changing. We'd like to extend some of this stuff to network systems. This is on, on the basis of what I said right at the beginning about location and interaction in that context. And, um, it's not immediately obvious how we would do this, but uh, because there's a great deal of increased complexity when we begin to think about the networks behind these things. Uh, and another important issue is to look at different definitions of cities. That, uh, cities as nodes or points versus exhausted partitions of space, but also how cities change over time in that sense. Now, um, I've written some papers on this. That, uh, there's a paper about five years ago in Nature, ranked clocks, and um, some of this stuff we did with um, uh, Perlin and Maxi uh, has got a bit of that in, and then somebody picked it up in ecology, and then there's a paper which is on the web called Visualising Space-Time Dynamics, which is a summary paper in the magazine called Complexity. And um, if you want to look at the, uh, um, if you want to look at the magazine, the, the relatively, uh, the complexity, I say complexity magazine, because it's sort of a sort of shorter uh, contribution than this, but uh, Visualising Complexity is the PDF, which is on our website that you can actually download. So I'll stop at that point, Julian. Um, I don't know how much time we've got. I know we've like, pushed it up to the limit, but it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think the issue is here um, is let me just go back to that. Oh, this is 
let me just go back to that. that we are talking about an, an, exha an exhaustive partition. So, uh, for example, the, the, urban area, the, the urban envelope, if you like, of Japan, not the mountains and so on, is contained within a space which is then subdivided into areas that do not change over time, in that sense. So I think what we're looking at is a kind of density thing as opposed to, it's not density, so I think that the definition of the data has affected the dynamics in that context. You can pick out in this um, really very dramatic changes during World War II, in that sense, where some districts of Tokyo simply disappeared, basically, that down in terms of population. It's soon, soon built back up again in that sense. But um, I think there are other characterizations of the system that would show an equivalent, well, we haven't done it, but we don't know, right? I mean, so, um, uh, but it's a very important point, that it relates to the definition of the objects in the first instance. It's quite a tricky issue. It's a very tricky issue, because if you look at our US data, New York, basically, was divided into the individual five boroughs until 19, until the 1901 census, and then in the, 19, in the 1900 census, 1910 census, it was all amalgamated in. And we've not control for that, in some sense. Actually, we do, we do control for that, wrong. we do control for that, uh, in fact, in the data set. But that gives you an indication of the difficulties, I think, of um, forming the right unit of analysis in this context. It's even worse when it comes to firms, right? Because you have all these mergers and acquisitions in firms. So um, the uh, the biggest problem is knowing, you know, sort of, you know, what was uh, General Electric in the 1950s and what is it now, right? All these firms aren't all this sort of stuff that's been amalgamated in. Some of them just fractured and disappeared, but they're still there in a sense. The lower the rank, the more turbulent it was in some sense. So you, you, the number one was New York and it stayed all the time in the number one. Then you had a few changes in the rank for the number of two, three, four, and so on. And then the higher the rank, the more turbulent it was in the number one. Is this something that you see in other data? Or? No, I, well, I, I'm not sure that is the. It, it, I mean, New York looks. Uh, New York is the anchor point, and it's remained the same. Um, but if you look in the top ten, you know, most of them weren't there in the top ten um, in, in 1840, and they, they were. They came. They're like it's something like uh, it's something like um, New York. Chicago, Los Angeles, Houston, and then Atlanta, something like that is the top five, basically. If you look at those cities, only one of them was in 1790. It's almost as though they're coming at these points in time. So we can compute the sort of half-life of how, how long a thing remains in, in, in the top 100 or the top 50 or whatever. And, and we do do that, in fact, in some of the, some of the software. So I'm not sure that that, that that would be warranted from, it might appear like that in the visualization, but I'm not sure it's warranted in terms of the actual conclusion when you begin to pick the data. It's an interesting hypothesis. We've not tested whether, you know, rank, average rank over this period, you know, is correlated with size. We've not tested that.
for the buildings. Uh, we, we also have different patterns looking at the wrong plot for the buildings. For example, in Chicago, there is a strong competition. Every new building is uh, considered a new, as a new challenge. Yeah. And this is probably not the case in the other cities. Yeah. So do you see different patterns of... Uh, well, to be honest, with um, to be honest, with, in, in the case of high buildings, for example, then um, you may well be right that uh, um, high buildings are particularly affected by um, policy. And there is, I've read something recently that suggests that in New York, for example, there has been a kind of anti-high buildings policy, like in London, presumably. You know, in London, the Paris and Paris, the high buildings thing has been, you know, really part of furniture uh, for many years. But um, certainly in New York, the reason why they've got not as high buildings as some of these other places is because of definite policy in that sense. So um, I don't think we've done enough examples, really, and unpicked it enough to be able to answer your question. I know that's not very satisfactory, but again, it's another issue that needs to be examined. If you did the right plots, and mm -hmm. you want to study volatility, um, you might want to, to, to take this one of the, of the time derivative of the radius. I mean, yes. when the, when the radius, radius moves, yeah. this is really the theory of change. Yes. Yeah. And uh, one would be to, 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 to look at the, at the, the distribution. Well, we, the, the, did you do that? Well, we've had a look at what we call um, distance in the clock, which is how far a city moves, as it were, as, it, uh, as, it, as the trajectory is traced out on the clock. And we produce some averages for um, averages of distance moved. It's sort of like rank shift, really, in that context. What we've not done is look at the distribution of those things, and, which is what you're suggesting, which we could do. And again, it's, it's, it's almost part of our further agenda. Now, you may say, well, we've been doing this for like sort of four or five years, etc. Why haven't we got round to it yet? Well, there are good reasons for it. It's not, in, I mean, it's not immediately obvious what the next thing we should do on it. And, but, but, I, but look at it. Just look at it. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. If there's anything regular or there's so, a scale of random. Yeah, 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 yeah. We need to do that, definitely. We have quite a lot of statistics which we've not analysed. In fact, the original software we've got, which is the desktop software, has a variety of statistics that uh, I think extend to some of these things. I'm not sure we've quite done what you said. But there's a variety of... Um, measures of variation that we've not looked at that we need to really. And again, I'd say, you know, very much on the cards to do that.